Hey, true crime fanatics, I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This week's episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head on over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And before we get started on today's episode, I do need to warn you, that today's show contains extremely graphic details of physical torture and mutilation. This subject matter may be difficult for some listeners, and if you think you're one of them, this might be one to skip. If you do listen, and there are young children around, I would strongly suggest that you listen to this at another time, and it is not suitable for work. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on to the show. Dreamers, I don't know if you can tell, but I have really been enjoying the stories that I have had the pleasure of sharing with you over the last few weeks. I've been experiencing a sort of renaissance with this whole podcasting endeavor, and it's making me feel inspired and uplifted. I feel like the stories I'm sharing with you guys are flowing out of me with much more ease than in the past, and I'm fairly certain it has everything to do with the kindness and support that I've been receiving from everyone listening. It's reflected in social media. We are slowly growing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. Every day we are getting more and more people joining us, wanting to be a part of this, and I welcome all of you with open arms. So now, I'm finding that it's time I begin to try and step outside the cases that only scratch the surface of all the things diabolical and evil there are out there. I tend to stay in this little bubble of cases that I've known a lot about, that I like how the story flows, and it's easy on me and easy on the listener. But this is true crime and me thinks it's high time we started getting into stories that some of us might be afraid to talk about, me included. Some of those stories that makes us squirm, or the ones that keep us up at night. And dreamers, do I have a story to tell you today? Buckle up because episode 41 is going to be unlike anything you've ever heard. Unless, of course, you've heard this story before. Then, I'm just going to tell it to you again. But, in my own special way. In today's episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Torture in the Mojave. Sometimes when something terrible happens to a person, when somebody becomes the victim of a crime so heinous, so unthinkable, Many steps are taken in order to protect the identity of the individual who had been made to suffer such a fate. Curious as we may be, unless that person chooses to come forward, 
to make himself or herself known to the world, chances are we won't ever be privy to the identity of the unknown victim. The interesting aspect of a circumstances such as this is something atrocious must have happened to this person, right? Something that can easily escape the scope of our logical thinking because we can't even begin to put ourselves into that place. For something to have happened to a person that it's been deemed necessary for him or her to be forced to exist in the shadows and hide themselves and to hide their story from us. But they lived. Isn't that crazy? They survived something that should have killed them. And if that person had died, we would most likely know their name. We'd know who they were and what happened to them because it would be public record. And then it would be up to the family to decide whether or not they were going to live in the shadows in the wake of the atrocity that has rained down upon them. But when the victim doesn't die, they're forced to live in anonymity. We know their stories, but we don't know them. We don't know who they are, and we don't know where they are. We might know their age and maybe a few scattered details of the life they are no longer able to live. And we certainly won't know their name and we won't know their face. If and when their case is adjudicated, their identity is protected from the media by order of the court. And then we come to know them as either John Doe or victim A. I could very easily find myself curious as to who this person is and what they might look like today, but I just know that my efforts would prove futile. So I don't even try, and I really shouldn't. None of us should, because this person, every person has the right to their privacy, especially if they've experienced something that could very easily be taken from the script of a horror film and live to tell about it. And this is exactly who is at the center of today's story. A victim who shall remain nameless and faceless. We can't know him or hear him or see him. And because of this, might we begin to feel ourselves feeling a bit detached from him? I don't really think any of us are truly going to feel like that. You all listening to me each week are a very kind group of people. And I know this and I see this every week when we talk on Facebook. Every victim is very real to all of us. But I do want to humanize the subject of today's story for all of us as much as I can. And I want to tell his story with as much tact and compassion as possible. So... I want to give him a name for the purposes of this. I want to call him John D. John D. was, at the time, a 28-year-old resident of Newport Beach, California, another beautiful oceanside community along California's Pacific Coast Highway, just about halfway between Huntington Beach and Laguna Beach. He shared the home with two roommates, an older couple in their 50s, a woman named Mary, and her boyfriend. The couple had recently moved to Newport Beach from Florida. 
John D. was the owner of a local medical marijuana dispensary, and by all accounts, business was going well. On the evening of October 1st, 2012, when Mary arrived home from work, she found something amiss at the home she shared with John D. Someone left one of the windows open. Now, I don't know what kind of window this was. I don't know if a screen was removed from the window. I don't know if there were blinds or curtain panels covering it. But from what I could glean from the articles I read, the window was open in such a way that it was completely wide open so that a person could very easily gain entry into the home without so much as an obstruction in their way. You could literally see straight into the house from outside the window. But other than that, Mary really didn't see anything else amiss. Nothing appeared to be missing or stolen, so she basically paid it no mind. Now, if this were me, I would not have been so nonchalant about finding one of my windows open like this, and I don't think any of you out there listening would either. We know how we leave our homes when we're off for work for the day or whatever, so to come home to an open window, I wouldn't just be looking to see if anything were missing. As a matter of fact, my first thought would be that someone might be inside the house and there's no way I'd go in there. I'd hate to overreact to stuff like this, but I wouldn't want to regret underreacting either. So Mary brushed aside her concerns and went inside. Her boyfriend was out of town on business and it wouldn't be until later on that evening that John D. would be getting home from work himself. She probably thought she'd mentioned the window to him, likely thinking that he was the one who thoughtlessly left it open and would just have to remind him to make sure to double check that he left the home secure each day when leaving for work. She went to bed upstairs a little after 10 that evening. John D. got home sometime later on that night. It is unclear if he made contact with Mary at all. And as far as he was concerned, all seemed quiet on the home front. He would end up dozing off downstairs on the living room sofa, the TV flickering. Eventually, he made his way upstairs to his bedroom and retired for the night. That ground floor wasn't left ajar by accident, my friends. Someone did come through that window earlier in the day, prior to Mary and John D. having arrived home that evening. Three someones, as a matter of fact, for some reason leaving it open as they did. And when I tell you that someone went through it, and because the window was left open, you might start to think the likely scenario was that someone perhaps intended to burglarize the home, open the window, entered the home, and for some reason abruptly aborted the plan and quickly exited back through the window and taking off without removing any items from the home. Maybe the intruder was spooked by somebody. Maybe they noticed a neighbor noticing them. Maybe a dog started barking. To put this into context, the homes in this part of Newport Beach, particularly in the areas in which the house sits, which is on the peninsula, they are very closely clustered together, 
like many beachside communities. They are often relatively narrow, very close in proximity, and the parkways are almost always lined with cars. It's not uncommon for the streets to be one way in direction to help ease the parking situation. And sometimes, because these places attract large numbers of visitors on any given day, even into early to mid-fall, the time of year this story is unfolding, when the weather can still be considered beach weather, residents are often required to obtain a residential parking permit. Do any of you live in neighborhoods where finding parking usually requires a miracle to take place? I have in the past, and if it's too problematic for residents, the city may turn the neighborhood streets into resident-only, permit-required zones. And there are two main reasons for this. One, of course, is to ensure convenient parking for residents. And two, for safety. You start to recognize your neighbor's cars. You will know whose cars belong and whose don't. If this sounds completely absurd to you, then you might not be from California. In my neighborhood, on my cul-de-sac, in order to park between the hours of 3 and 5 a.m., you must have a permit from City Hall. You may obtain an annual permit if you qualify, or you may obtain an overnight permit if you are visiting. So you know if I arrive home late or I'm out very early in the morning, I will notice cars that don't belong right away. And the reason I am harping on this is because parking is going to play a major role in this story. I would even go so far as to say it's actually going to be the game changer. So that window left open. That was an entry point into the home. Three men had come into Mary and John B.'s house. They donned ski masks over their faces, very dark clothing, and they were wearing rubber gloves. They had weapons with them too. One had a shotgun, another had a pistol. And when they came into the home, they didn't leave. They weren't there to burglarize the place. They weren't there to sexually assault anyone. They had a plan. And this was the first step in carrying it out. Someone in this home was being stalked. That nameless, faceless man in a quiet slumber in his upstairs bedroom. Each one of the intruders had found a closet to hide in. And they waited. Sometime after midnight, into the early morning hours of October 2nd, each of these unknown masked and armed intruders emerged from their hiding places and made their presence known to the sleeping pair. John D. was awakened by a bright light being shined in his face. That, coupled with just coming out of his slumber, he had no idea what was going on in front of him. John D.'s first inclination that it was a buddy of his wanting to pull some kind of crazy prank on him. He's starting to think it's his friend Todd, so he tells him to cut it out. The figure on the other side of the flashlight spoke up, making it clear to him that he was not Todd. It was quickly becoming apparent to John D. that this was no joke. That person behind the glare of the flashlight, as John squinted trying to get a better look, he had a ski mask on, obscuring his identity. And this masked intruder 
had a shotgun pointed squarely at his face. John D. quickly reacted by shoving the shotgun barrel to the side, but no sooner had he done that did the masked man swing the butt of the shotgun around, striking John D. in the side of the head, rendering him nearly incapacitated, disoriented, and he was bleeding profusely from the blow to the head. Seemingly out of nowhere, a second masked intruder launched an attack on John D. next, punching him and attempting to choke him into unconsciousness. John D. was unable to put up any kind of a defense. The strike to the head was too much to overcome. John D. was made to lay face down on the ground. His hands, pulled behind his back, were bound together with zip ties. His ankles then, too, were restrained in the same manner. He was blindfolded, and duct tape was placed over his mouth. And with that, John D. was grabbed by his ankles and slid across the bedroom floor, face down, trailing blood as he went along. All the way down the stairs, his face smashed into each step as his body descended the staircase. It's becoming quite clear that John D. was definitely targeted, and this attack was very well planned. But what about Mary, John D.'s roommate? Whatever these guys had in mind, they certainly couldn't leave a potential witness behind who would more likely than not contact authorities the first chance she had. She was fast asleep when she suddenly felt something very cold pressed against her skin near the back of her head. This instantly woke her up, and she knew without a doubt that what was pressed against her skin was the barrel of a gun. The man holding the gun told her quietly, whispered at her for her to not to worry that this wasn't about her. He then instructed her to stay quiet, and if she didn't attempt to fight, she would be okay. And then she was restrained in the same manner in which John D. had been restrained. Zip ties around her wrists and ankles, a blindfold over her eyes, and duct tape to silence her. We listening to this can only imagine the fear that she and John D. must have been consumed with. And even more terrifying, as one of the intruders proceeded to crudely drag Mary down the stairs in a similar manner in which they had John D., the pants that she was wearing wouldn't stay up as she went down. With her hands bound behind her back, she tried to grab a hold of them, but she couldn't. One of the intruders helped her pull them back up as he told her that this wasn't about that. I seriously doubt that that brought her any sort of comfort to know that she wasn't going to be raped. But still, you've had a gun pressed into your head. You're bound. You're gagged. You're getting dragged out of your house by three men you have no idea who they are or what they're after. I don't even know if I were ever in that situation, if I'd be able to think clearly through the fear and the panic. But okay... So these men are after something, and it's appearing more and more that it has nothing to do with Mary, but something to do with John D. But what? What is this all about? 
they're about to find out. John Dee and Mary were kept on the ground, next to one another, near the exit towards the garage. The three men began searching the entire house from top to bottom, looking through every drawer and every cabinet. Whatever it was they sought, they did not find. So, they came back to their two captives and said, Where's the money? And there it is. These men were after some kind of large stash of money they seem to think is hidden someplace in the home. One of the men removed the duct tape from John Dee's mouth in order to give him the opportunity to answer the question. John Dee told them that he had about $2,000 hidden in his drawer. Now, you know and I know that these three men did not carry out this elaborate plan for a measly $2,000. They told John Dee that this wasn't the money that they were after, and they asked him again, where's the money? He tried to tell him that the only money he had in the house was the $2,000. The men spent about another half hour searching everywhere in the house for the money, looking for a safe or lock boxes, but there was nothing. John D. was telling them the truth. So, do you think these guys are going to cut their losses and take off empty-handed? Or maybe with just that $2,000? Not a chance. They weren't done. And if you think the situation has been bad for John D. and Mary thus far, it's about to get worse. Way worse. Their vehicle was parked just outside by the exit of the garage, a van. The men proceeded to bring their captives outside and force them into the back of the vehicle. Remember what I talked about earlier? Neighbors with impacted parking and permit zones? Well, I can't confirm that these men were parked in a permitted zone. If it was, it would have either been ticketed or towed, and that would be contingent upon whether or not the police or parking enforcement noticed the van being in violation. But I do recall that the last time I was in this area, seeing parking signs up that indicated the streets were reserved for permitted vehicles only. So, like I said, when you live in a place like this, you get to know your neighbors, and you get to know their cars. It is really crammed like sardines and beach communities that are right on the sand. And guess what? That vehicle parked there, it had been there before. And it was there long enough for one vigilant neighbor to take notice. When things don't belong, they stand out like a sore thumb. This is a very affluent area, and I don't know what kind of vehicle they had, and because I would come to know that the van belonged to one of them, who was in fact a marijuana grower, I don't think he was driving around anything fancy. So, I imagine this vehicle parked outside of John Dee's garage for at least a couple hours at some point during that day, possibly into the evening, and then again into the wee hours of the next morning, probably stood out. And thankfully for those neighbors, sometimes wary, sometimes suspicious, and sometimes nosy, this neighbor took it upon herself to jot down the license plate number of the vehicle. 
Thank goodness for those meddlesome neighbors, right? This vigilance will become vital to the investigation into this, as you will come to see. So John D. and Mary were lying in the back of this van. One man got behind the wheel, and two others were in the back with them. These intruders just leveled up to kidnappers. This was still very early in the morning. It was dark, but there is almost always some vehicles on the roads and freeways, no matter what time of day it is. So this van was no longer out of place. It was no longer looking suspicious. It was headed somewhere. Destination unknown. And while they drove, the men in the back of the van renewed their assault on an already battered and helpless John D. They were determined to get him to cough up the information as to the location of this money they presumed he had someplace. And they were going to do so by inflicting a great deal of pain and fear onto John D. They punched him. They kicked him. All the while, prying him for the answer to the question, where's the money? John D. still had no answer for them. He insisted he did not have this hidden money they were looking for. So, the two men stepped up their assault again, going from kicking and punching to burning and shocking. Yeah, these men were brutal. They began burning John D. with a torch, demanding to know where the money is. They stunned him with a taser, continuing to demand to know where the money is. This van was cruising the streets and freeways of Southern California. All the while, this young man is being brutalized within its confines. And Mary, an unwitting passenger on this horrific ride-along, what in the world must be going through her mind? These men aren't doing anything to her aside from having her bound and gagged, which is terrifying in and of itself, but they've made it clear that she just needed to cooperate and she would be fine. Is that comforting? Probably not. But as I journey through this nightmare, I am grateful that they aren't hurting Mary. I'm very grateful that she was spared the torture. Even so... I am hurting over John D. In imagining his fear and anxiety is literally making me ache in my head and in my back and in my chest. As we sit here and talk about this unfolding, it's paralyzing. The kidnappers finally got specific, their demands more pointed. They wanted to know where the million dollars was and they wanted to know where it was buried. John D. continued to insist that he had no idea what they were talking about. He did not have a million dollars. He did not have it buried someplace. He didn't have that amount of money anywhere. It probably goes without saying that John D.'s answers did not placate these men, not in the slightest. As a matter of fact, it seemed to infuriate them, causing them to ramp up their assault on John D. inside that van. 
They grabbed a rubber hose that was stored in the back of the van and proceeded to beat him with it repeatedly all over his body. They stood up, hunched over in the vehicle and stomped on him, all the while demanding he take them to the million dollars. And there were times when they were beating John D that his legs would move or flail, likely because of the pain, and he'd accidentally kick Mary, and they would get even more angry, demanding that he stop kicking her. It went on, seemingly forever, trying to force an answer from John D that they wanted to hear, an answer he did not have for them. It makes me wonder, at what point does one decide enough is enough? It's like a standoff that has no end, a battle of who's going to break first. Either John D is going to fess up to where the money is, if he does indeed have it, or he's going to remain silent until he's beaten to death. And as for the captors, when do they decide it's over? Are they ever going to eventually believe John D doesn't have the money? Or are they just going to keep on going until he dies and still not have what they're looking for? I'm fairly certain that John D didn't have the kinds of money that they were searching for. I don't know at which point he would have caved if he did have it. But then, if he did, and turned the hidden money over to them, what are the chances that they're just going to kill him? They may not have. Catching a murder case would take the crime to a whole other level. They didn't want that. They wanted the money, and they probably thought they were going to get away with their scheme to get it too. John D. was desperately pleading with them, imploring them to believe him that he did not have that kind of money. He even told them that in his marijuana dispensary he had about $40,000 in cash there at the shop, and that he could get that for them. But they scoffed at him. Not only is $40,000 chump change compared to a million, the shop was surveilled by security cameras, and there was no way any of them could walk into that place. Not the kidnappers, and certainly not John D. He was bloodied and battered. They laughed at him, telling him he couldn't go in there looking like that. The driving continued in excess of more than two hours as the torture and demands for the million dollars went on incessantly. These men were relentless. They were convinced John D. was lying to them, hiding his money from them, and they were hell-bent on beating the truth out of him, literally, until they killed him. What John D. and Mary didn't realize is that this drive crossed out of Orange County into the Mojave Desert region of Eastern California, which is sprawled across San Bernardino, Riverside, and Kern counties. The Mojave also stretches into Nevada. They had a Spanish radio station on as they went. Can't you imagine this now, today, being a panic trigger for the remainder of their lives anytime Spanish music comes on the radio? I was hung up on the radio being played in Spanish for quite a while trying to figure out if it was another way of messing with the minds of the captives. I don't know if they were playing it loudly or not, but it was on the entire time. I was probably overthinking it like I overthink a lot of things. Most likely though, they were trying to lead them to think that they were of a Hispanic background, 
And this was probably the reason, as Mary would go on to later describe the men as trying to pretend they had Spanish accents. And they were going from speaking English to speaking broken Spanish. None of these men were Hispanic. She couldn't be certain, as she was still blindfolded, but she was pretty convinced that they were fake accents. She could also hear them flicking a lighter, and she could smell that they were smoking something, but she wasn't sure what. The demands for the money continued, and they started making other kinds of threats too, because obviously, the beating, kicking, punching, stomping, whipping, shocking, and burning wasn't doing the trick. They told him he was going to die, that this was going to be his last night alive. He again offered up that he could retrieve $100,000 he kept in a safe deposit box, and he promised that he would be able to get it the next day. But they knew that he couldn't do that in the condition he was in. And again, $100,000 is only a tenth of what they were certain that he had in his possession. So John D. has now gone from $2,000 to $40,000 to now $100,000. Were these men thinking that it was only a matter of time before he reached the magic number? Yeah, they're probably thinking that. The death threat didn't seem to make a difference for John D. He still wasn't giving them the right answers. At that point, I wouldn't doubt John D. was ready to die. After all he'd been put through for the last three hours or so, death could likely be a welcome exit from this hell, I can imagine. They next threatened to kill Mary if he didn't fess up to the location of the money, and along with that, they informed John D. that they knew who his girlfriend was, and they knew what she looked like, they knew what kind of car she drove, and they knew the location of her parents' house. None of this brought about what they were trying to get out of John D. But they were not done trying. They decided it was time to take this outside. The van suddenly transitioned from the smooth pavement of the road to the sound of traversing gravel. Mary could hear it, and she became filled with panic. In her mind, this was it. They were turning off the main road onto some desolate location off the road. It's rough, and it's bumpy, and most likely, nobody's coming out this way. They were going to be dumped here. They were going to die. And they're never going to be seen again. This was it. The van finally came to a stop and John D. and Mary were taken out and placed on the ground, onto the gravel. But these three kidnappers, they weren't quite ready to give up on that million dollars just yet. They decided this was going to be the location where they were going to escalate their assault on John D. once again. All three of them were screaming at him, Where is the money? Where is it at? We know this is where you buried it. We know you have it. Show us where it's at. Shoot him in the head. Yeah, because that's going to help him show you guys where the money's at, right? Mary braced herself for the gunfire, but... There was none. One of them, 
in his fakish Spanish accent, began telling John D that his patron is going to be very upset if they don't come up with the million dollars. So now they are trying to insinuate that they are working for some higher up, a patron or a boss. And with that, they doubled down on their threats. They told John D that they were going to cut off his penis, that they were going to shoot him in the head, and that they were going to kill Mary when they were all done. One of the other men chimed in, do it. So, they did. The following is very, very disturbing. So, if you're squeamish, fast forward the next 15 or 20 seconds. In a weird, high-pitchy kind of a sick mantra, one of the men was chanting, and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth as one of them proceeded to saw off his penis with a knife. One of the other kidnappers stood on him, holding him down, leaving behind an imprint of the sole of his shoe on John D's body. I can't even begin to wrap my head around what is going on here with these men and what they were doing to John D. This mutilation of him, what kind of person does it take to be able to do something like that to another human being? This is probably one of the worst acts of violence I have discussed thus far in the show. I hope you're sticking with me through all of this. And Mary, you know she is right there listening to all of this happening to John D as her eyes are still covered and she's still restrained with those zip ties. Suddenly, she heard the sound of liquid pouring. What's the first thing you're thinking is being poured? Right? Me too. Gasoline. I totally could see these sick men setting John D on fire without a moment's hesitation or a second thought. Mary thought so too. And so did John D. Through all that he'd been put through, he still had his wits about him enough to know that he was being doused with some liquid. But it wasn't gas. It was that very identifiable odor of chlorine bleach. Ugh, yes, bleach. Oh, that must have been excruciating. The wounds he'd suffered, doused with bleach... The smell of it? My stomach is churning right now. The pouring of the bleach was yet another one of their attempts to cover up what they've done, an attempt to rid the scene of any DNA they may have left behind. These guys must have been thinking they were so smart, right? They had all this planned out. They were going to break into this guy's house. He runs this medical marijuana dispensary so he must be loaded, right? They're going to cover their faces, they're going to wear some gloves, and then douse everything they touch with bleach and get away scot-free. Well, little do they know that there was a busybody neighbor with their license plate dotted down on a post-it note somewhere, right? They didn't see that coming, did they? Don't worry, we will get to that. 
and I can hardly wait to tell you about it. Mary, still laying there, felt a knife being placed against the palm of her hand. The man who was hovering over her asked if she knew what the item was that was touching her hand. She said that she did. He then told her that he would take the knife and toss it to an area no more than five feet away from her. And then he presented her with a challenge. If you can get to the knife, if you are able to use it to free yourself, you live. And then he said to her, today is your lucky day. And he tossed the knife. She heard it land onto the gravel. She then heard them pile back into the van and start the engine. She was then instructed to count to a hundred. She didn't count though. She laid there and listened. And when the time came that she could no longer hear the tires of the van traversing the gravel, that's when she decided to begin to move again. She managed to get into a sitting position and bringing her head down close to her knees, she pushed her blindfold up just enough so she could see out of the bottom of it. By this time, dawn was breaking. She looked around and saw that the men were indeed gone. As the sun rose, its rays reflected onto the blade of the knife that the men had left behind for her. Mary managed to shimmy herself closer to the knife and, somehow, she got that blade of that knife to rub enough times across the zip ties binding her ankles until they were finally cut freeing up her legs. She then made her way over to John D., who, miraculously, was still alive. She was able to help him get the duct tape off his mouth, but when she attempted to get that knife to cut through the zip ties binding his hands, she found that that was going to be impossible. Because he had been so brutally beaten, his hands swelled and the zip ties were embedded deep into his wrists. There was no way she was going to be able to get those zip ties cut without further injuring John D. She was so worried that he was going to bleed to death. She had no more time to try and figure out how to free his hands or hers for that matter. She could see that not too far away, there was traffic going by. She could see headlights and taillights of passing cars. And that was her only hope at this point hoped that she would be able to get one of those cars to stop and help. She told John D. that there was a road nearby and she was going to leave him for a few minutes and try to get help. She assured him that she'd be back and told him to do the best he could to stay calm. So he laid there waiting, wondering if he was going to make it or not, hoping that someone would come for him. With the blindfold still wrapped around her forehead and her hands still zip-tied behind her back, grasping onto the knife, just in case she found someone who would be willing to help her, she would have something to offer them to cut the zip-ties off of her wrists. The gravel on the ground was cutting into the soles of her bare feet, thereby making it impossible for her to go any faster than a cumbersome walking speed. She finally was able to make her way to the margin of whatever freeway she was standing on. As she stood there screaming for help, cars passed by. She could see the faces of those drivers as they passed on by, the disbelief in what they were seeing. But 
it would not be one of those passerbys that would stop and help Mary. Fortunately for her, most Southern California freeways are very well-traveled and well-patrolled. So, it would be only a matter of time before a member of law enforcement would happen by Mary there standing on the side of the highway. On his way to work to start his day, commuting along Highway 14 that morning, close to the town of Mojave, Kern County Sheriff Deputy Steve Williams noticed Mary on the shoulder. He could see clearly that her hands were being kept behind her back, and he spotted that blindfold on her head. I bet that's something even cops don't see on a regular basis, right? And he wasn't even clocked in for the day yet. He turned around, because he knew something really bizarre was going on here in the desert. He radioed for help as he made his way back to Mary's location. Of course, when Deputy Williams approached her, Mary flew into a full-blown panic. He tried to calm her down so he could be clear as to what she was trying to explain to him. The whole story was spilling out of her, but the urgency was that her friend, she was frightened for his life. He immediately requested paramedics and they were there in just a matter of minutes. Mary got into Deputy Williams' vehicle and they, along with the backup and the ambulances, made their way across the desert where she had left John B. He heard them coming. He heard their tires rumbling across the gravel, so he began to call out as they approached. Deputy Williams got out of his vehicle to see John D.'s condition. Amazingly, and thankfully, he was alive. With his hands still bound behind his back, he was positioned on his side, with the odor of bleach causing Deputy Williams to recoil momentarily. He could see that John D. was covered in wounds, and that they were telltale signs of a victim who had been systematically tortured. He saw burns, cuts, bruises, the markings left behind when a stun gun is pressed into someone's flesh and activated. His face was bloodied, his eyes forced shut by the swelling. Law enforcement tried to find John D's penis that these men had cut, but the search was in vain. John Dee's disfigurement would be permanent. It would later be speculated that the men who committed this crime removed it from the scene, perhaps disposing of it elsewhere, just so it couldn't be found and surgically repaired. Sick. These guys. To think that they were out there somewhere. It's a frightening thought. You might be wondering... Was there any buried millions out there in the Mojave Desert that John D. was squirreling away for safekeeping? No. There was nothing valuable out there. Just a lot of dust and dirt. The location where Mary and John D. were left was a place that technically is no longer a place anymore. It doesn't even really appear on any maps. It's a place called Reefer City, California. It was established by a South African mining company following the discovery of gold on Mount Soledad. The miners that worked at the location were housed in the refrigerator cars, nicknamed reefers, that were purchased from the Southern Pacific Railroad specifically for them to reside in temporarily while mining in the area. The mine was shut down in 1942, and for some years after that, 
Military personnel stationed at nearby Edwards Air Force Base resided in the Reefer City area. In 1971, Reefer City as a whole was sold to a private salvage company, and whatever structures remained, those were demolished. This is where these boneheaded attackers thought John D. was stashing a million dollars. In all the time that they were torturing him and mutilating him, they were doing so only four miles away from a sheriff's station. John D. and Mary were rushed from the scene for treatment at a hospital about 20 miles away. The investigation into this crime was launched immediately. This was something unlike anything Newport Beach had seen. Remember back in episode 14, I told you about the story of the death of Tom and Jackie Hawks? How they met their deaths off the coast of Newport Beach? I would say that that, and the story that I'm telling you today, would be the absolute worst Newport Beach police had ever dealt with in recent years. Things like this just don't happen in this Oceanside community. The most police typically have to deal with are usually public nuisances, disturbances, often alcohol-induced ones, maybe some petty crime here or there, but kidnapping, torture, mutilation? No, this just isn't a thing in Newport Beach. It really shouldn't be a thing anywhere, but anyway. So the urgency to solve this matter skyrocketed past anything investigators had on their plates. These guys were scary violent, and they needed to be off the streets fast. The biggest question that needed to be answered first, who the hell were these guys? They were apparently intimately familiar with whom John D. was, but John D. had not a clue as to the identity of the men who had done this to him and Mary. He wasn't a troublemaking kind of a guy. He had nothing weird or crazy or criminal in his background to speak of. And enemies? If he had any, he didn't know about it. And obviously, he had at least three now. Everyone who knew John D., friends, family, associates, those who did business with him, all agreed that he was just a cool guy. He was outgoing, friendly, social. People liked him. Beyond that, he was pretty unassuming. He rented a room in that house from which he was kidnapped for $1,000 a month. He didn't drive a flashy car, just an old truck. Investigators also headed out to the desert where the victims had been discovered. They made that more than 140 mile or 225 kilometer trek out to the location to see what clues they could find out there along with getting whatever information they could from the victims while they were recovering at the hospital nearby. But it wouldn't be long before investigators got a tip. And this would be that tip that would break this case wide open. And this tip would come from none other than one of those prying busybody neighbors I told you about earlier. Ah, oh, but I don't want to cast a negative light on all inquisitive neighbors sometimes, like in the case of John D., we can be thankful for their vigilant, albeit sometimes nosy ways. And this, this would be one of those times. 
But before we get to that, I think we need to talk a little bit about the line of work John Dee was in. The medical marijuana dispensary business that he owned and operated. But to understand that would be to understand a little bit about what was going on in California at the time in regards to the sale of medicinal marijuana. Medical, or the therapeutic use of marijuana, was legalized in 1996 with the passage of Proposition 215 by California voters. This meant anyone who was able to obtain a medical marijuana card from their physician would be able to legally purchase it. And you're familiar with the types of ailments patients would have treated with marijuana, things like cancer, anxiety, glaucoma, among other medical conditions. Today, marijuana is legal in California for anyone 20 years of age or older to be used recreationally. But at the time of our story today, it wasn't. It was only for medicinal purposes. So John D. operated his dispensary in Orange County. He had several employees on his staff, and his business consisted of a very wealthy demographic, which makes sense considering the location. And his business was cash only, no credit cards, no checks, no IOUs, cash up front or no sale. And it makes sense that in a business like this, not only with cash flowing into the place at a steady stream, but also because of the nature of the business, he's selling a product that's illegal for almost everyone, with the exception of anybody who would be able to obtain a medical marijuana card from their doctor, that a business like this might make an enticing target for a robbery. Since the federal government still has marijuana categorized as illegal, no bank that is FDIC insured, which is basically all of them, will do business with anyone operating a dispensary, even if it's all on the up and up. So this forced dispensary owners to manage their own cash, keep it in safes or in specific hiding places. Wherever their money is at, it's not tucked away safely in the bank. And these high-end clients John D. was often catering to, they probably didn't want their purchases showing up on their bank or credit card statements, so they'd almost always pay in cash. And this is who John D. was. One unassuming guy selling medicinal marijuana in a very affluent area, running a cash-only business, who was popular, social, and a generally well-liked nice guy. He was pretty much a sitting duck. Let's get back to the scene where this crime first started. John Dee's and Mary's house. Police surrounded the home with crime scene tape, and this included an alley behind the home. It was clear that there was a trail of blood that had ended in the alley, working backwards into the garage, through the home, up the stairs, and into the bedroom. The blood told the story of what occurred the late hours of that previous night. Blood splatter told of a vicious beating that John D. had suffered, and the home had been turned upside down. Of course, by those three intruders during that search for that imaginary $1 million dollars, a passerby noticed the police activity at the home and stopped her vehicle nearby and exited her car to talk to police. She had a friend, a friend who had told her something she'd witnessed the day before. 
And now that she was seeing this going on at the exact same home that her friend had told her what she had seen, she was putting the pieces together. But what her friend saw, and the fact that the police were there now at the scene, these two things must be more than a coincidence. She spoke to a detective at the scene. She told him that she knows someone who might know something about whatever it was they were in there investigating. She gave him her friend's phone number. He quickly gave the woman a call. And boy, did she have a story for him. During the day on October 1st, 2012, she spied three suspicious men near the garage of John D's home. She watched them prop up a ladder on the side of the house, and there was a white truck parked nearby that they were working out of. At first glance, she thought that perhaps they were some sort of workers. I mean, that sounds legit, right? We see trucks and vans with ladders all the time in our neighborhoods. Cable service, air conditioning, plumbers, painters, landscapers. And they all usually have their business emblazoned on the sides of their vehicles, right? Well, that's what stood out. Not only did these guys not have any kind of business indicated on their vehicle, they didn't really look like they were doing any kind of work. That would be pretty obvious too, wouldn't it? They'd have tools, maybe a tool belt or a bag, and they'd be carrying stuff to and from the house. But none of this was happening. One of them was wearing a hard hat, so that makes all of this completely on the up and up, right? Nah, she wasn't buying it. She witnessed them standing around the ladder. They extended it and retracted it, extended it and retracted it again, but she did not see them climb the ladder. She was able to give the detective somewhat of a physical description of the men. The one with the hard hat had a beige-colored shirt. He might have been Hispanic with dark hair and an average build. She said he was relatively handsome, but that's all relative. And she said they looked to be about in his 30s. She described the second suspect as also looking like he was Hispanic, that he had dark hair as well, and he also appeared to be in his 30s. But he was not as tall as the first guy. He was a bit stockier, and he had on an orange t-shirt. She was unable to provide any information as to the physical description of the third man. She just didn't get a good look at him. Worried that they would notice her noticing them, she intermittently ducked down from where she was perched watching so that they wouldn't see her. And when the coast was clear, she would start watching again. And she wrote down the license plate number on their vehicle. I love this woman so much right now. A quick check of the plates revealed that the vehicle was a 1998 Dodge Ram. The person that the vehicle was registered to was a man by the name of Kyle Handley. He hailed from Fresno, California, but currently resided in a town just northeast of Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, California. And he had a very interesting little bit on his criminal record. In 2007, he was convicted of growing marijuana in the place that he rented. Marijuana, you say? Hmm. Is this a coincidence? Let's see. So this man just so happens to have a bit of a shady past with marijuana, gets connected to this kidnapping and torture case of a marijuana dispensary owner, 
I think not. When investigators asked John Dee if he knew who Kyle Hanley was, he knew exactly who he was. They were in the marijuana business together. Back in 2012, Hanley contacted John Dee at his place of business, wanting to sell him some homegrown marijuana. And that was the beginning of their working relationship. Hanley supplied John Dee with marijuana for several years. He charged him $2,800 per pound or per half kilo. The customers liked Hanley's quality of marijuana that he supplied. A friendship eventually grew. Talks of becoming business partners even swirled. They even took spontaneous trips to Vegas together. But at some point, John Dee stopped purchasing marijuana from Hanley. I wasn't able to find any clear reason why, which makes me wonder if Hanley ripped him off or sold him a bad batch of marijuana. Whatever the reason, their business relationship was over, but they apparently stayed friends. And they continued to socialize and travel, even taking two more trips to Vegas in March and in May. But despite the fact that their professional relationship had ended, they remained friends and began hanging out socially even more so. The victim had taken Hanley on trips to Las Vegas like I had told you, and these trips happened just months before the kidnapping. And John D. wasn't making it a secret that he had money to blow, footing the bill for a penthouse suite costing $1,200 for the weekend and several more thousands on gambling, sex workers, and cocaine. He thought that they were friends. They had a really great time partying together. John D. had no idea what was going on behind the scenes with Hanley. Maybe, just maybe, John D. was a little too flashy with his money. A little too generous because, unbeknownst to him, these guys had their sights trained directly at him. It wasn't long after the last couple of John's to Vegas that John D. lost touch with Hanley altogether. He tried reaching him by phone, but he got that no longer in service message. Sometimes things like this happen in the marijuana business. People got busted or they got shut down and all their stuff gets seized. John D. has seen these kinds of things happen before, so that's what he figured happened to Hanley. Chances were the guy was either in jail or took up his business somewhere else. It was his thought that maybe Hanley would get back in touch with him once he was able to regroup and start up again. So now, with this information about Hanley, investigators were curious as to whether or not John D. recognized the voice of Hanley during the commission of the kidnapping. He said that he really couldn't be 100% sure. He never saw the faces of these men. He thought maybe that he had heard one of their voices before, but remember, they were trying to disguise the way they sounded with fake accents. And it could have been possible that Hanley, since he was the one who had previously had interactions with John D, and he may have been able to recognize him by his voice, that he may have intentionally stayed more quiet than the others while they had him and Mary as captives. Besides, I don't know how much information detectives thought that they were going to be able to get from John D, considering the trauma his body was subjected to throughout this entire ordeal. I'm surprised that John D had the level of awareness that he was actually capable of throughout the whole thing. 
Now it was time to start bringing these men who'd done this to John Dee and Mary into custody. And it couldn't have happened fast enough. The thought of these men on the streets is bone-chilling. Police quickly obtained an address for Hanley. They began surveilling him, perhaps to see the places that he would go, the people that he would visit, so they would be able to get as much information about his life, his day-to-day activities, and the circle of friends and associates that he conducts business with on a daily basis. I would bet that if there was even a person Hanley looked at funny during the time that he was under police surveillance, they were going to be dragged down to the police station for some serious interrogating. Detectives were not taking this case lightly. It goes without saying, anyone capable of doing what these three did, there is no place for them to be free amongst us. Orange County Sheriff's deputies finally decided they'd had enough of this guy perusing around town. They pulled him over in a routine traffic stop at a convenience store in Huntington Beach around the early morning hours of October 6, 2012, just four days after the kidnapping and torture of John Dee and Mary. I realize these men didn't actually do any physical harm to Mary, nothing like they'd done to John Dee, but the mental and emotional torture, it was very much a part of this whole nightmare for her as well. Besides, It can't possibly feel good to have your wrist bound behind your back for hours upon hours. Not to mention her ankles, duct tape over her face. Ugh, don't you just find these guys to be revolting? So, Hanley was taken into custody that night. He was driving his dad's Lexus. What a loser, right? Wait, what? I've currently been driving my mom's Lexus around because she's trying to sell it and I get around more than she does. So that doesn't count. Anyway, his vehicle was impounded, and he was for now being charged with having on his person a switchblade that was illegal, apparently. I am not familiar with the laws when it comes to carrying weapons. For example, last week when I baked a cheesecake for my husband's birthday and delivered it to his place of work, I was wondering if it was illegal of me to have my 8-inch chef's knife shoved into my handbag. I figured if I was pulled over and I had this knife and since I had the cheesecake with me, it would make sense. And yes, I actually had this thought as I carried my cake and my knife to my car. So, since inquiring minds want to know, let's talk a little bit about knife laws in California. According to shellslaw.com, California has an open carry knife law, which allows you to carry a dirk or a dagger openly in a sheath attached to at the waist but they may not be concealed in any way, not in a purse, backpack, briefcase, or any other kind of container. And this actually applies to any knife capable of being used as a stabbing weapon. Any functional blade, including ice picks, knitting needles, scissors, and chef's knives. So, technically carrying my chef knife in my purse was illegal. Now we know. And trust me, the only thing that I would be stabbing is some cheesecake. So, folding knives, except for switchblades, may be carried in your pocket or your purse as long as it's closed. But it can also be carried openly if the blade is exposed, but it must be in a sheath attached to your waist too. This includes pocket knives, box cutters, and other utility-type knives. There are other kinds of knives that are illegal to be in possession of, open or concealed, and these include switchblades, ballistic knives, 
spring-loaded knives, gravity knives, butterfly knives, belt buckle knives, cane or any kind of staff-like object or crutch that conceals a knife within it, knives made from materials that cannot be detected by a metal detector, and knives disguised as anything like a lipstick or a pen. So this is what police were able to hold a dumbass Hanley on, this switchblade charge. Police were getting busy searching his home and his truck, looking for anything that could possibly tie him to the crime. The neighbor jotting down his license plate number was indeed compelling, but obviously they're hoping to find some really good physical and forensic evidence pointing to his complicity in the kidnapping. Lucky for us, guys like Hanley, like I just said, they're just dumb, 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 dumb. It might be easy for us to say this because we might feel like we have the know-how to get away with the perfect crime after all the stupid things people like Hanley do to trip themselves up. But we aren't stupid, so we're not even going to try, right? So this bozo had a bag of garbage in his backyard. Four days have passed, mind you, since the crime took place. Four days this guy had to get rid of this damning physical evidence. Not potential damning evidence. Damn straight damning evidence. So... In this trash bag that Hanley had all the time in the world to get rid of, guess what investigators found inside? One used zip tie. And at first glance, it looked identical to the ones used to bind the victims. And on the floor of his truck, they found one blue latex glove. Oh, the DNA swimming around inside that little glove. Then, inside his home, Investigators uncovered a sweatshirt that was covered with bleached out spots. Don't you just hate it when you accidentally get bleach on your clothes when you're trying to douse your torture victim to destroy any DNA evidence you left behind? I know, me too, right? The evidence uncovered was sent to the lab for DNA and forensic testing. The results from the DNA testing of the latex glove revealed the identity of a second person who, because of this DNA, just became connected to this crime. It belonged to a man by the name of Hossein Nayiri. Dreamers, do you remember this name? If you had the chance to listen to the prelude to this episode, when I put it on Patreon last Thursday and on your regular feeds on Friday, you heard me tell the story of a jailbreak Nayiri pulled off a little over two years ago from the Orange County Men's Central Jail. This was the crime that he was being held in connection with when he made his escape with those two other inmates. This was the guy that ran loose for eight days, terrorizing that poor cab driver. If you don't know what I'm talking about because you missed the prelude episode, you don't have to listen to it to follow this story. But he is the guy that ties into this story, Hussein Nayiri. As it turns out, he and Hanley's friendship dates back to their high school days. And many of the details that would come to light leading up to the kidnapping would actually come from Nayeri's now ex-wife, a woman named Courtney. She would go on to describe her relationship with Nayeri as an abusive one, fraught with instances of domestic violence towards her. And according to Courtney... The plan to kidnap some medical marijuana dispensary owner was months in the planning. As for her part, I don't know how involved or 
how much in the know she actually was at the time. Based on her account of the violence on the part of Nayeri, I would go so far as to assume non-compliance was not an option. I'm not going to place any of the responsibility of this crime on her. I don't know her, but I do know what these men are capable of. So I can only judge based on those facts. Courtney told investigators that Nairi had been in the business of selling marijuana, but sometime in 2012, he quit doing that in favor of something that was going to make him some money much quicker than just dealing. She said he knew this guy, John D., who owned a marijuana dispensary, and it was his understanding, likely based on what his friend Kyle Hanley had been telling him, that this guy was loaded. They started surveilling John D. months before the kidnapping happened that night of October 1st, 2012. They were watching him, seeing where he was going, figuring out his routines, his usual spots, and apparently they had tracked John D. heading out to the Mojave Desert numerous times. Nairi even questioned Courtney about it once. He showed her a map of the desert, purportedly the area he'd spied John D. headed to on several occasions. He asked Courtney, why would someone be circling out in the desert? Would that be a great place to bury money? She answered him, yeah, sure, probably. Following that, she said Nairi just got weird. He was consumed with following John D., like he was on some sort of spy mission. Courtney would sometimes go with him to various locations, not only in Orange County, but in Los Angeles County, too. He would post himself up someplace he thought was inconspicuous. He would install tiny cameras and surreptitiously install GPS devices onto vehicles in order to allow him to keep an eye on their activities. And this would enable him to do so from his own computer at home. He would sit there for hours, staring at maps on his computer, matching them up with the GPS trackers he'd placed on those cars. He was doing so almost every single day, looking, watching, waiting for a pattern of locations to emerge. And this is where he began to see a pattern of his hidden GPS make several trips to the Mojave Desert. So in his own mind, this is what he postulated. This car he was tracking was making regularly scheduled trips to a desolate place in the desert. The only plausible reason anyone would do so would be to bury money. To Nairi, this all made sense. And he was determined to get his hands on John D's buried treasure. Courtney and Nairi lived together in a rented apartment, also in Newport Beach. She told investigators that in September, a couple of weeks before the kidnapping, they'd really start putting together the final details of the plan that they had to get that money that they were certain was buried in that desert. Courtney said Hanley paid Nairi a visit at their home approximately two weeks prior to the kidnapping. She saw them hanging out in their garage, talking and laughing with one another, but she didn't know what was so funny. They were playing with a blowtorch. Nairi was also slamming a hard hat into the cement ground of the garage, rubbing it against the concrete, attempting to scratch it up, make it look not brand new. He asked Courtney if it looked as though the hard hat had been used. 
I don't know if she answered him. He also asked Courtney if he could use her stun gun, which she gave to him. Four days before John Dee and Mary were kidnapped, Courtney was at their apartment alone. Sometime during the night, police came pounding at her front door. They informed her that her vehicle, a Chevy Tahoe, had just been in a high-speed pursuit and that they traced the vehicle's license plates to her. They found it abandoned on a tiny neighborhood street on Balboa Island, not too far away from her and Nayeri's apartment, but the driver managed a successful foot bail. Her car was at the impound lot. Courtney knew that Nayeri had her car, but instead of telling the truth, she lied, telling the officers that she had no idea who would have her vehicle out on a pursuit at this time of the night. I don't know why the Newport Beach police didn't try to dig a little further. Did they ask her who had access to the car? Did they ask her who lived there at the home with her? She's married, right? If so, where's her husband in the middle of the night? Why didn't they ask to talk to him? Or did she have a story for that too? I don't know, but they seemed to just take what Courtney was saying at face value. They left and she tried to go back to bed. I don't know what she was thinking, but if this were me, and this was my husband acting a fool in my car in the middle of the night, you best believe that we're going to have some words when he shows back up. But I don't know if Courtney was able or willing to challenge Nayeri in such a way. I could see her being intimidated by the guy. And then he did show up. About an hour later, soaking wet and freezing cold. He evaded police by hiding out in the water under a nearby overpass. I don't know what he was running from the police for. Most likely they were trying to pull him over for a traffic violation. Maybe he had some weapons or drugs in the car. Maybe he was high or drunk. Or maybe they would just find some reason to take him off to jail. So he led them on a pursuit. You see, when this happened, he'd actually been on probation for a felony vehicular manslaughter conviction back up in Fresno many years earlier. The chances of him being taken in for a probation violation were pretty high, so he decided to take police on that chase. He told Courtney when she goes to get her vehicle out of the impound to also go to the police station and report that her vehicle was stolen. And she did just that. But... She didn't pick up the vehicle right away. Nairi was never linked to that chase, at least not yet. He'd for sure racked up a violation and go straight back to jail. He couldn't go to jail, though. He had plans for a heist in the making. He then wanted Courtney to take him over the Hanley's place. He said he wanted to take a nap. But most likely, he wanted to be there in case the police showed back up again at their apartment for more questions about the stolen vehicle and the chase. Two days before the kidnapping, on September 29, 2012, Nairi instructed Courtney to purchase four burner phones, telling her to keep one for herself, and he took the other three. That same night, while trying to help Hanley activate his phone, Nairi was growing impatient because Hanley couldn't figure out the instructions. So Courtney got on the line and helped him get through the steps. Implicated up to her eyeballs in this mess, isn't she? She now knew who had three of the phones, herself, Nayeri, 
and Handley. As for the fourth phone, she had no clue. Nairi then instructed Courtney to use his iPhone to make calls and texts to herself for the next couple days. October 1st arrived. Courtney stayed home that day. It was a Friday and it was her birthday. Instead of enjoying the day with family or friends or her husband, she spent her birthday texting and calling herself from Nayeri's iPhone while inside their apartment. Obviously, Nayeri's wanting his phone to ping there for the entire day. Boy, these guys just have all their bases covered while up to all these hijinks, huh? And what about Courtney? I said I wouldn't blame any of this on her. I like to think that she was acting out of fear, or maybe being naive or ignorant, just wanting to look the other way. I can't say what I would have done if I were in her place, but I'm pretty sure I'd be nervous, perhaps even scared. So I'm not judging, but it's not easy. Can't you imagine how sad this whole scene was? She's spending her birthday alone, texting happy birthday messages to herself, making phone calls and just letting them play in silence. But here's what I don't get. I don't know where her phone was, or if she was calling the burner phone, or if he had her phone with him. I have no idea, and nowhere could I find where that was cleared up anywhere. If she had both phones, they'd be pinging in the same place. So, even if this was his cover to place himself at home during the commission of this crime, it would place him there but calling a phone that he was sitting right next to. And if he had her phone, then hers would be pinging near the victim's home, then all along the route taken to the Mojave Desert, then ultimately near the location of where the victims were found. Is this an example of where they might have come up with the term half-assed? Because Nayeri only half-assed his alibi instead of whole-assing it? I don't know. That's assuming he only considered the location of his phone never concerning himself with the location of her phone. And that's how Courtney spent her birthday, covering for that heinous crime her husband and two of his associates were committing. I really wonder how much she really knew, or how much she decided not to know. I do know that she was eventually granted immunity for her testimony, but I also read something about her being under review by the state bar Huh? Really? She's a member of the bar? Oh boy. Can't really excuse her actions by playing dumb, now could she? Miss Courtney, attorney at law. Sheesh. No, dreamers. She's not an attorney. You think a guy like Nairi could get that lucky? She was a law clerk. But I do believe she was studying to become an attorney. She did not speak to Nairi until the morning of October 2nd. From his burner phone to hers, he called her and asked her to put some money in the parking meter where Hanley had parked his truck. Ah, okay. So his truck is down there parked at a meter near a restaurant on Baboa Island, right? And while they're out there in the desert, beating, kicking, punching, stomping, burning, stunning, whipping, sawing, and bleaching John D., 
they're worried about getting a parking ticket? Are you freaking kidding me? Talk about sociopathic. I just can't with these guys. Ugh, and Courtney. Oh, Courtney, we are giving you the benefit of the doubt here. But you also try our patience. So, so much. So she found Hanley's vehicle. It was parked about a half mile away from John Dee's and Mary's house. She fed the meter and then left for her job as a law clerk in Cerritos. Hey, that's where I live, Courtney. Girl, you are too close for comfort. So Courtney spoke to Nairi later on that day of October 2nd. He told her that he needed her to purchase four more burner phones, which she did. And then he told her to smash up the first one that she had. So she did. She gave him the new phones and kept one for herself. This woman is seriously trying all of us, isn't she? Well, dreamers, she's not done yet. When she arrived home that evening, Nairi was nowhere to be found. She had no idea where he was at. She saw a pair of his socks in the trash, and the apartment looked like someone had maybe come and gone in a hurry, but she wasn't sure if he'd been there or not. So, she figured maybe her dog had messed the place up. Okay, law clerk lady. I have dogs, and yeah, they get into stuff. But it's usually pretty obvious what they're responsible for and what they're not responsible for. They might find a paper towel roll and tear that up. They might get their paws on a loofah and pull that apart. Or they may even pull all the guts and squeakers out of their dog toys. They might even drag in some droppings from the palm tree in the backyard and tear that up inside the house too. But I'm fairly certain that my dogs would not cause the apartment to look as though someone had come and gone in a hurriedly manner, quickly change their clothes, toss stuff around, leave doors and closets open, and toss socks into the trash when they're done. Nope, I can honestly say that my dogs have never taken it upon themselves to decide that something needed to be properly disposed of in the trash bin. Okay, Courtney, so stop playing. Oh, and get this guess what she did next she bagged up the trash and drove it a distance of eight minutes and threw it in a dumpster behind a costa mesa target what are you kidding me this smells like a slight case of obstruction of justice just saying but benefit of the doubt dreamers benefit of the doubt she did indicate a history of domestic violence remember in her relationship with Nairi. And he does come off being quite the scary individual. I know that I'm making light of her role in this crime, but it isn't lost on me that she was very likely functioning under duress. But still, she had to have known. There is no way that I'll believe otherwise. She may not have been aware of the gruesome details but she knew her husband and his friends were up to no good. She claimed she spoke to Nairi and asked him about the socks, telling him that she threw them out, and he sort of danced around it, telling her that they were good socks, but it's better that she threw them out. 
Did either one of them really believe that the other was thinking that this was about whether or not he liked a pair of socks? Doubtful. When Kyle Hanley was placed under arrest on October 6th, Nayeri caught wind of that, and he flew into a frenzy. He began his cover-up, and then he began his escape plan. He started with the destruction of any and all evidence in his home that could possibly be used as evidence against him. His iPhone, smashed. Laptop, destroyed. He did away with everything electronic that they'd owned. He spent days scouring the place from top to bottom, attempting to wipe clean anything and everything that could possibly connect him to John Dee's and Mary's kidnapping. Nayeri wasn't only going to work on cleaning up his place, but he headed over to Hanley's to do the same. However, he wasn't cleaning up physical evidence per se. He actually burglarized Hanley's home, being that he was in jail and all. Why the heck not, right? He stole a flat screen TV and a Tiffany watch. He told Courtney that he was going on a vacation to Iran and for her to sell the TV and the watch so he'd have extra money. Yeah, right. A vacation. Investigators next turned their sights towards the Tahoe. For some reason, even days after the arrest of Hanley and having identified Nayeri via that DNA match to the glove, and I'm assuming his DNA is on file in the database for his various previous convictions, investigators discovered that the Tahoe was actually still sitting in the police impound yard from the night that Nayeri was involved in that high-speed chase in it and ditched it on Balboa Island. They quickly obtained a search warrant for the vehicle, and they found quite a bit of evidence inside. GPS trackers, small surveillance cameras, and magnets that would enable these devices to be attached to the metal parts of a vehicle in order to track it. Also, the cameras that they found had countless hours of surveillance footage. And in looking over the video, at one point in it, John D. could be seen walking from his dispensary to his vehicle parked nearby. Just unbelievable. Police were also able to uncover a cell phone that had been logged into Hanley's email account. In it, they were able to scroll all the way back to March of 2012, and this is where they found evidence of purchases Hanley made, GPS devices and mini cameras, all sent to his home. So all the while this guy is partying in Vegas penthouses and strip clubs with John D. He was busy purchasing the very equipment that would be used to track his friend so that they could plan out a scheme to kidnap him and take him for all his money. Some friend. Police stepped up their search for Nayeri, but they were going to have to look far and wide for him. On or about October 14, 2012, Nayeri absconded to Iran, leaving his old high school buddy to rot in jail and take the rap for the whole thing. And he wasn't planning on coming back. And even if he had, he wouldn't have been able to. He was in the United States on an expired green card. So again, I'm sitting here wondering why he was even in the United States in the first place. On probation, no less. For felony vehicular manslaughter. I mean, what does one have to do to get deported? Kill someone? But wait, isn't vehicular manslaughter? Never mind. That's a topic for another show. 
Courtney would go on to admit that she was trying to protect her husband from police and prosecution. But ultimately, she had a change of heart. I don't know if it was just an epiphany or if she just came to her senses. But if I were to offer a guess, I'd say she was facing some pretty hefty aiding and abetting charges with the side of obstruction of justice and a little bit of accessory after the fact. Yeah, a girl was in some deep trouble. She lied to police. She failed to tell them it was Nayeri who was driving her car the night of the chase. She filed a false police report claiming her vehicle was stolen. She refused to provide police with Nayeri's cell phone number when they asked. And she played the I'm a law student card in doing so. But it would be more than a change of heart. When police initially brought her in for questioning, she stonewalled them, would not say a word or admit to anything, still protecting this guy. What's a cop to do when a suspect refuses to be cooperative? Well, apparently, if you're the Newport Beach police, you call their father. Yep, they called up good old dad. And according to detectives, the conversation went quite swimmingly. And it was during that phone call that police had some interesting news for Courtney's dad. His daughter was actually married to the scumbag. What? She didn't tell her family that she got married? What? Okay, well, knowing what we know about Nairi, can we blame her? I'm pretty sure that dad would not be giving his blessings to that mess. Dad was not pleased with this bit of information. But in talking to her dad, it marked a turning point for Courtney and her willingness to cooperate with police. Now that the cat was out of the bag, there was really nothing to hang on to. I don't know how much she was dependent upon her family, and she was making her way through law school, but it was apparent at this point that the approval of her father meant more than protecting Nayeri any longer. And with her help, investigators were able to gain some insight into the man who'd been a part of this horrifying crime. When Courtney met Nayeri in 2003, he was 24 and she was 16 and still in high school. So this might explain why she kept her relationship with him a secret from her family. It could have gotten into some serious trouble the first couple years of it. It wasn't long before he began to become physically abusive, reporting that in her best estimate she was beaten by him at least 60, as many as 70 times during the course of their relationship. Police were called, concerned neighbors, apartment managers. Everyone could hear what was going on behind those closed doors. She herself only ever called police once. She did press charges sometime in 2011. However, I could not find any further information about that. And this presumably was what she was hiding from her family. He had effectively isolated her from them, which is why she was able to keep her secrets from them. And when the heat started coming down on her regarding the kidnapping and torture of John D. and Mary, she was terrified of what he'd do to her in order to keep her quiet. He wasn't in jail yet, remember? He'd fled the country. At the same time, she had to remember, she was looking at some very, very serious charges as to her role in the whole thing. And in this particular case, she was looking at life in prison. She had no choice but to roll over on Nayeri. She was going to go on to earn her immunity, but 
she was going to have to do more than just talk. Police wanted her to do them one more favor. They wanted her to try and talk to Nayeri. They wanted her to convince him to somehow leave Iran. And she agreed. Wise decision. I don't think Courtney would be safe as long as Nayeri wasn't behind bars. In order to not raise his suspicions, she decided to wait for Nayeri to make the first move and contact her first. So when he finally did reach out, he did so via email. She let him know that police had spoken to her. He seemed hesitant to talk, but before long he came around and started openly communicating with her. By mid-2013, he was regularly sending emails, making phone calls and video calls with her. All of it, she was documenting for authorities. At the same time, detectives, the Orange County District Attorney, in concert with the FBI, were trying to find a foreign country that would be willing to work with them in helping to get Nayeri into custody and extradited back to the United States. Enter the Czech Republic. And the plan involved Courtney enticing him to fly there to meet up with her. She promised to bring him money, a new cell phone, a new computer, and of course, herself. But this plan would take some time to percolate. So she started trying to get chummy chummy with her sister-in-law, Nayeri's sister. She began to attend family gatherings, even going to the funeral of a family member of his. She planned a vacation with her sister-in-law to travel to Spain for a European getaway. She invited Nayeri to join them there for a celebration as she did finish law school and was set to graduate that summer. She sent him the documents that he would need to travel from Iran to Europe, but all of that was given to her by the FBI. This is sounding like a pretty elaborate scheme, doesn't it? Kind of like the plot of a movie. This had to be believable, though. Otherwise, Nayeri wouldn't go along. And his sister needed to go along with the plan, too, without being aware that the whole thing was complete subterfuge. And they actually did it. Courtney brought $20,000 that she got from her mom and dad, and along with her travel companion, Nayeri's sister, they flew to Spain together. At every single step of the way, they were being supervised and closely instructed by the FBI. And every person involved in this charade was nervous, worried that Courtney might send him a message or a signal that the feds were with her. They couldn't bring themselves to trust her 100%. They just had to go on faith that she would do the right thing and help bring their fugitive into custody. I can imagine this being nerve-wracking, but she did no such thing. She kept to the script and saw the plan through, start to finish. She had a lot to lose too, remember. Nayeri boarded a plane on November 7, 2013, departing from Iran, headed for Prague, Czech Republic. It was scheduled for a layover before heading to Barcelona. But Nayeri would not be boarding his connecting flight. As soon as he stepped off the plane, he was approached by Czech officials, the U.S. Marshals, and the FBI, and promptly taken into custody. Police, prosecutors, agents, John D., Mary, even Courtney, could now breathe a little easier that this man was off the streets. It took more than a year 
to get to this day. This was a great development in the case. Nairi was one slippery guy. As excited as they were to have him into custody, there was still one more arrest that needed to happen, the third kidnapper. Who was this guy and where was he? It was only a matter of time, a little more digging, a little more detective work to figure out that Nairi and Hanley did not really look that far from their group of high school friends to recruit a third person into their scheme. Turned out to be a guy named Ryan Kavorkian. Yeah, just like the assisted suicide doctor Jack Kavorkian. And if there's a relation, I don't know of it. Kavorkian was arrested, along with him his ex-wife, a woman by the name of Naomi Rodas. The investigation into kidnapping led to him being identified as a third potential suspect, so detectives began surveilling him. They needed to somehow collect a sample of his DNA without his knowledge. They ended up catching him working out at a 24-hour fitness in Palmdale, California. He participated in a pickup game of basketball, and then he worked out, lifting some weights and stuff, and when he was done, he went into the locker room. Officers were nearby, and I kind of pictured them wearing workout clothes. So, they watched him as he used a towel to wipe up some sweat, setting it down on a bench, and left it there. I can just imagine those officers' eyes lighting up as they gazed upon all that DNA that just got sucked up into that cloth. They promptly bagged it and sent it off to the lab. So... Guess what his DNA results happened to match with? Remember that zip tie investigators found in Hanley's trash bag after they arrested him with that switchblade? It was that used zip tie in the trash. That was the item that Kravorkian's DNA was on. Those darn zip ties be damned. So what was Kravorkian's story anyway? How did he wind up implicated in one of the most atrocious crimes Orange County had ever seen? Kevorkian, it seems, like his two buddies, struggled with boundary issues. He used to be a corrections officer in the California prison system. His dad was a retired deputy commissioner for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, or the CDRC. But Kevorkian, he didn't end his time with the CDRC the same way his father had. The younger Kravorkian was forced to resign in 2010 when an inmate at the California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California turned up pregnant and it was suspected that he was the dad. Nobody was willing to comment about this, whether or not it was confirmed that he was the dad, if he had been disciplined during the time that he was employed with the Department of Corrections, or if the allegations of inappropriate sexual relations was true. Everything was just kept private due to the fact that he was an officer and he's protected under specific privacy laws. And for him, I'm really not willing to give him the benefit of the doubt in this whole case of the pregnant inmate. The article I read said that he was forced into resignation. What exactly does that mean? That he had to resign? Otherwise, he'd be facing an investigation into whether or not the inmate was pregnant with his child? Don't you think somebody needs to be investigated, resignation or not? 
Would the alternative have been that if he had been investigated that he would have been fired and that'd be worse if he'd resigned? You would think that the guy should be made to face the same consequences regardless of whether or not he was fired or resigned. I mean, it's not like there would be a mystery surrounding the paternity of the child. That would be easy to prove or disprove. He resigned because he was guilty of inappropriate sexual contact with an inmate. That I am certain of because if he didn't do anything wrong, I don't think he would have resigned. So are you wondering how Kevorkian's ex-wife figures into all this? Well, kind of in the same way Courtney got caught up, just by going along with her husband's plans. But as it were, Naomi had more of a hand in the planning of it all than Courtney did. At least that's what it appears to me. Investigators discovered that she purchased some of the surveillance equipment using an alias and a fake email account. She was also the one who provided the weapons the men had, and she was the one who rented the van ultimately used in the kidnapping of John D. and Mary, having picked it up on September 25, 2012, and returning it to the rental agency on October 3rd, the day after they dumped John D. and Mary in the desert. She was also classmates with Nayeri, Hanley, and Kevorkian. She had also for a time worked in the marijuana growing business with Hanley and Nayeri in the past when they previously conducted business together. And as a testament as to the planning that went on in this, Naomi purchased the handgun used in this crime way back on March 7, 2012 at a gun shop in Fresno. She then went back and returned it to the shop on October 24th. I guess they were done with it or wanted to get rid of it. As far as I know, it was never fired during the crime, so there would be no useful ballistics testing. But just the fact that she bought the gun around the same time that it appears the kidnapping plan was hatched and then returned it not too long after the crime was committed. Coincidence? I think not. And also amongst her belongings, they discovered a 12-gauge shotgun in a storage facility she kept up in Fresno. And in digging into her background, they found that she took a random trip by herself to Turkey with $10,000. Hmm, because that's a thing to randomly do out of nowhere, right? Travel from Fresno to Turkey just for fun? She gave Nairi that money so he could sustain himself overseas while on the lam. Her attorney would tell anyone who would listen that his client was coerced into all of these actions that she was basically claiming ignorance. She had no idea why these guys needed surveillance equipment, a Glock semi-automatic, a 12-gauge shotgun, and a creeper van. No, nothing weird about that at all, right? Naomi would describe Nayeri as a fast talker, always having the answers, always the explanations. He needed the van to move. He needed the guns for protection. He needed the surveillance equipment because he thought Courtney was cheating on him. And she says that she believed all his stories, just like everyone else in his circle of friends believed everything that he had to say and catered to all of his needs just because. Of course, I'm skeptical, just like I'm always skeptical, as to what Naomi knew and what she didn't know. I mean, throughout the course of our lives, we have groups of friends, right? Some come and go, but... If any one of my friends asked me to buy some guns, buy some surveillance equipment, and rent a van, I'm pretty sure I'm thinking my friend was up to no good. 
no matter how smooth my friend thinks he is. So after Nayeri was arrested in the Czech Republic, he would go on to spend about 10 months locked up in Pankrak Prison in Prague while the details of his extradition were being ironed out. And while there, Courtney sent him a care package. Aw, how sweet. They were divorce documents for him to sign. It wasn't going to be that difficult though, and I don't even think the guy had to sign the papers. You see, it would come to light that he was actually already married in Iran when he married Courtney. Add bigamist to his growing list of things that he's accused of. The marriage was effectively brought to an end by court order on the grounds of bigamy. Nayeri was finally back on American soil on September 14, 2014, almost two years after the kidnapping and torture of John D. and Mary. But there was much more that needed to be accomplished in seeing this case to its end. And this is when the jailbreak would take place, the one I told you about a couple days ago. When Nayeri's name was called at the 8 p.m. headcount the night of January 22, 2016, there was nothing but silence. It became clear that something was amiss. He, along with the two other escapees, Jonathan Tu and Bak Dung, were long gone. All three of these guys were of great concern, but there was a particular fear that struck knowing that Nayeri was amongst them. If anyone was tied to this case, it was time for them to take cover, especially his victims. I can't even imagine what they were feeling when authorities informed them that Nayeri was on the loose again. And the ones who worked tirelessly for the year to bring him back, all the way back from Iran, only to have this happen? Everyone involved in this case was put under police protection. And Courtney, her and her entire family were included. They would not take the potential for Nayeri to try and kill Courtney lightly. I did tell you much of the details that went into the jailbreak in the prelude last week, so if you didn't have a chance to listen to that and you want to know more about it, you can take a listen to that afterwards. But the one thing I did find out since I recorded that is how the tools were smuggled into the jail that the inmates used to saw their way through the steel bars and fixtures to cut a pathway through the walls. I'll get to that in a second. So once the inmates made their way through the walls of the jail during their escape and onto the roof and repelled down those bed sheets, they had a getaway driver waiting for them. This was all caught on the exterior surveillance cameras. That driver was later identified as Luck Ba Wing, and he was a friend of Dong's, the one who helped spare the life of the cabbie that they took hostage. During a previous visit, Wing was given a list of things that they needed for their escape and he got the stuff. He put it all in a backpack, a rope, a knife, clothing, a duffel bag, wire cutters, and cell phones. And he tied it to a rope that they managed to hang down the side of the building sometime prior to the escape. Yeah, all of this went unnoticed. Wink was promptly identified, arrested, charged, and spent a year in jail for what he'd done. He claims he was intimidated into participating and helping them get the tools because of pressure from the gang Nung had been associated with and he says he wasn't paid a thing to do what he did. NBC conducted an interview with Nayeri sometime after his recapture. I debated whether or not to talk about this because in reading it over, it really didn't add anything to the story. 
By the way, he's denying that he was involved in the kidnapping and torture of John D. So there wasn't going to be anything earth shattering to come from this interview. He was interviewed behind glass, shackled by the waist and legs, and flanked by seven armed guards. I guess they're kind of taking the guy for kind of a flight risk. Nayuri inquired about the cab driver involved in the escape they'd made. He is also denying that he was kidnapped either, claiming that the cab driver went with them willingly and that they treated him nicely. When asked more about that, all Nayuri would say is, I'm just going to leave it as is. It speaks for itself. He talked about the stress of being on the run, that they feared for their lives, and that they felt hunted by the sheriff, and he was proclaiming on TV that he was coming to get them. Um, yeah, that's kind of how it works. So, as for how he's treated now since the escape, he described it as being like nailed to the ground. Yeah, that sounds about right. In his interview, you kind of get some insight as to how he ended up down this path because it seems like things should have turned out differently for him. His father was a doctor and his mother was a lawyer. He was raised in Fresno and was a wrestling standout. He joined the Marine Corps, but it was only for a short period of time. He went AWOL to go drinking and jet skiing. He had been a volunteer in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit. He made a sizable donation to the relief effort, but he did so using money he had earned selling marijuana. He was asked to be a part of the effort on the ground in Louisiana in the hardest hit areas, which he actually did, driving himself out to New Orleans. He ended up staying for five weeks, helping with the recovery effort. It was then he says he began struggling with a drug addiction. So, if there ever could be an explanation as to how Nairi went so far off the rails, that might be an indicator, but I wouldn't just excuse his behavior away with a drug addiction. What actually comes to mind when I think of him is the Menendez brothers. Successful parents with mediocre kids, kids whose parents immigrated to the United States and struggled for years to make a better life for their children than they had, and in doing so, failed to equip their own kids with the tools to grow into functional adults. And then they begin to become disappointments to their parents. And then they just cause them to become angry with their kids, threatening to kick them out or write them out of the will. Then the fear and anger and resentment start to set in for the kids. So they start looking for an easy way out of their perceived problems. For the Menendez brothers, it was to assassinate their mother and father before they had the chance to write them out of the will. For Nairi, the answer to his problems was to make that one big score and walk away with $1 million. Like I said, the interview is unremarkable. He just danced around the questions, didn't really provide any answers, blamed everyone else, and denied all the charges against him, and closed it out by saying that he's in limbo now, but all in all, he's had a good life. I've despised many of the individuals we have talked about over the 60 episodes and bonuses that we have. But this guy, Nairi, he feels like one of those individuals who is never, ever going to stop trying to get away. And as long as he's alive, he will continue to be a danger to anyone around him. And I hope with every fiber of my being that he is never able to breathe free air again. 
Kyle Hanley went on trial for his role in the kidnappings in December of 2017. He pleaded not guilty. John Dee and Mary both testified as to what was done to them back on that day more than five years earlier. The jury heard all the details that I've described to you throughout this entire story, and it would only take them two hours to decide that Hanley was guilty as charged. The articles I found indicated that Hanley was scheduled to be sentenced on March 23, 2018, just a few weeks ago, but there have been no updates yet as to his sentencing that I could find, so I'm assuming that the hearing has been delayed. He is facing the possibility of a life sentence without parole. As for Nayeri and Kevorkian, they're set to go on trial later this year, so this is a story that we can continue to follow as it unfolds. And aside from John Dee's identity, there is something else that is unknown about this case. Who amongst the three kidnappers did what to John Dee? Prosecutors could only speculate, but the one thing they seemed fairly certain of is that Nayeri was the mastermind of the whole thing. And based on what we know about him, that's probably a good assumption to make. But the fact remains that we just don't know how much of a role each of them had in the terrible things that they did to John Dee and Mary. And none of them are going to fess up to it. When I think about it, it really doesn't matter. They were all in this together. And if you ask me, I'm glad that prosecutors didn't need any of them to roll over on the other in order to build a strong case. They didn't have to offer any kind of plea deals for testimony. They didn't have to offer or give anyone a lighter sentence in exchange for a full confession. And if you think about it, that worked against them all. Any one of them could have been less complicit than the others. One of them could have just been a driver and never laid a hand on John D. or Mary. But we don't know. So, we cast the guilt upon them all equally. And I like that. I hope you've enjoyed this 41st episode of California Dreaming presented to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Please come on over and join the conversation on the Facebook page. Leave your feedback and comments on this story, Torture in the Mojave, or the Orange County Jailbreak of 2016, or any of the episodes in our catalog. Find the page and request to join if you're not already a member of the group. You may also follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming has also created a Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all the bonus content that is available, gain early access to episodes, and receive the perks of being a supporter of the show. And if you would prefer a one-time donation to support the creation of California Dreaming, you may do so with PayPal using our email, californiapod at yahoo.com. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can go over to iTunes or on Facebook and rate and review the show, and also spread the word by liking and sharing about us on social media. As you know, California Dreaming is so very lucky to be a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network, and I'm very excited to announce that very, very soon, there are going to be some new and exciting things happening with all of us. You know about all of our shows, The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super New Year's UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 4-1 Owned, Film Roast, Fox Arcana, and The Podians. 
We have also a blog page called The Vortex, where we here at Orbital Jigsaw review a variety of podcasts and give our take on their shows. So if you're looking for something different, check out The Vortex. You may find something there you'll enjoy. You will also find links to our merchandise store where you can get your very own California Dreaming t-shirt or coffee mug. And every purchase on the store supports us as independent creators. So head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on all the links. And these links to the website and the merch store are always in the show notes. Thank you as always for listening to California Dreaming. I will see you all next week, and until then, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.